friends. Welcome to episode 7 of Ents and Sensibility, the podcast for Jane Austen fans who love bold, witty women, awkward, handsome men, and dragons. I'm your host, Casey Meserve. Together, we are reading Austen's published works one chapter at a time. We discuss the major themes, Austen criticism, her earliest fans, and her place as an author in the 21st century, and as much nerddom as we can get away with. Before we get into today's episode, I have an announcement. In our next episode, episode eight, I have a very special guest. Uh, I am going to be speaking with Amanda Ray Prescott. She is a freelance contributor for Den of Geeks. She is a expert on period dramas and UK TV. She is a cosplayer and she is focused on racial diversity within period dramas. So I am really looking forward to speaking with Amanda Ray, and I hope you stay tuned and listen to that episode. Today, I actually have a special guest too. My cat Blackjack is in the recording booth with me. Right now he is asleep and hopefully he will stay that way or else he'll start knocking everything over. But today we have a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Before we begin our chapter discussion today, I thought we could read one of Jane's letters. One in particular stood out to me. It's March, the spring equinox was a couple of days ago, um, but until the past few days, it's been really cold throughout the United States. So I thought that we could read something about hot weather to keep us warm. Sloan Street, Thursday, April 25th. My dearest Cassandra, I can return the compliment by thanking you for the unexpected pleasure of your letter yesterday. And as I like unexpected pleasure, it made me very happy. And indeed, you need not apologize for your letter in any respect, for it is all very fine, but not too fine, I hope, to be written again or something like it. I think Edward will not suffer much longer from heat. By the look of things this morning, I suspect the weather is rising into the balsamic northeast. It has been hot here, as you may suppose, since it was so hot with you. But I have not suffered from it at all, nor felt it in such a degree as to make me imagine it would be anything in the country. Everyone has talked of the heat, but I set it all down to London. I give you joy of our nephew, and hope if he ever comes to be hanged, it will not be till we are too old to care about it. It is a great comfort to have it so safely and speedily over. The Miss Curlings must be hard-worked in writing so many letters, but the novelty of it may recommend it to them. Mine was from Miss Eliza, and she says my brother may arrive today. No, indeed, I am never too busy to think of S and S. I can no more forget it than a mother can forget her suckling child, and I am much obliged to you for your inquiries. I have had two sheets to correct, but the last one only brings us to Willoughby's first appearance. Mrs. K. regrets in the most flattering manner that she must wait till May, but I have scarcely a hope of it being out in June. Henry does not neglect it. He has hurried the printer and says he will see him again today. It will not stand still during his absence. It will be sent to Eliza. The incomes remain as they were, but I will get them altered if I can. I am very much gratified by Mrs. K.'s interest in it, and whatever may be the event of it as to my credit with her, sincerely wish her curiosity could be satisfied sooner than it is now probable. I think she will like my Eleanor, 
but cannot build on anything else. Miss Austin, Edward Austin's Esquire, Godmersham Park, Faversham. That letter was written by Jane to Cassandra from their brother Edward's Godmersham Park on April 25, 1811. That was the year Sense and Sensibility was published, and as you can see, Jane and her family are really excited about the book. In the letter, S and S stands for Sense and Sensibility. Henry Austin was the brother responsible for helping Jane get published, and he is at it, pushing the publisher to hurry up. And Jane and Cassandra are obviously talking about it with all of their family friends. Mrs. K, that's Mrs. Elizabeth Knight, Edward's wife, is very excited about it. And Jane is also planning to send corrected sheets to her cousin Eliza. So this letter makes for such an exciting picture of Jane, just as she begins to imagine success as an author. And speaking of Jane's first published book, today we are reading chapter 7 of Sense and Sensibility. In previous chapters, the Dashwood women have left their home in Norland and made their way to their new home at Barton Cottage in Devonshire. They inspected the house, which doesn't fit their perceptions of a cottage, and they take in the gorgeous scenery around Barton, and they meet their landlords. Sir John is a kind, gregarious man who does not take no for an answer, and Lady Middleton, Sir John's wife, is a golden droid program for etiquette and protocol, or at least she could be. We last left the Dashwood ladies with Sir John as he refused to leave until the family promised to have dinner at his home the next day. In Chapter 7, the Dashwoods finally make their first visit to Barton Park. Now, Barton Park is about a half a mile from Barton Cottage, hidden from view by a hill, which is why we didn't actually see it in Chapter 6. The house was large and handsome, and the Middletons lived in a style of equal hospitality and elegance. The former was for Sir John's gratification, the latter for that of his lady. They were scarcely ever without some friends staying with them in the house, and they kept more company of every kind than any other family in the neighborhood. It was necessary to the happiness of both, for however dissimilar in temper and outward behavior, they strongly resembled each other in that total want of talent and taste which confined their employments, unconnected with such as society produced, within a very narrow compass. Isn't it incredible how much Jane can tell you about a character in, in a very small amount of text? There have been textual comparisons of Austen and various male writers, and the results always say that Austen is far more verbose, that she uses more words to say something than the average male author. But then... There are passages like this where she cuts right to the quick of the character in just a few sentences. For however dissimilar in temper and outward appearance, they strongly resembled each other in that total want of talent and taste, which confined their employments unconnected with such a society produced within a very narrow compass. The Middletons have nothing in common and they have no hobbies except the two I'll bring up in a few minutes. So, as Eddie Murphy sang, they party all the time.
That was so dumb. I loved that. The Middletons love having company. Continual engagements at home and abroad, however, supplied all the deficiencies of nature and education, supported the good spirits of Sir John, and gave excuse to the good breeding of his wife. So Sir John hunts and shoots, which are two different things. Hunting is shooting deer and four-footed mammals, and shooting is bird hunting and done with bird dogs. Lady Middleton has her children and a nursery maid, and probably an assistant nursery maid, and eventually a governess for the girls, and a tutor for the boys. She's 27, she has at least four children, and her only interests are her children and being elegant. So the Middletons enjoy company for very different reasons, and yet they're totally complementary reasons. Lady Middleton piqued herself upon the elegance of her table, and of all her domestic arrangements, and from this kind of vanity was her greatest enjoyment of, in any of their parties. But Sir John's satisfaction in society was much more real. He delighted in collecting about him more young people than his house would hold, and the noisier they were, the better he was pleased. So Lady Middleton is vain about her home. She's like Martha Stewart. She's showing off her home. She's laying an elegant table and having the most stylish way of welcoming their guests. What's surprising to me is how willing she is to host just about anyone her husband invites. Sir John, however, he just wants people there. He's a social butterfly. He wants to party and have outings and picnics and balls. And all the teenagers and the young people in the neighborhood love Sir John because they always know he's ready to host a party. He was a blessing to all the juvenile part of the neighborhood. For in summer he was forever forming parties to eat cold ham and chicken out of doors, and in winter his private balls were numerous enough for any young lady who was not suffering under the insatiable appetite of fifteen. In Georgian and Regency England, fifteen was the age where girls were first allowed to go to balls and to dance. Of course, both boys and girls would have had dancing instructors and tutors because dancing and balls were such a hugely important social aspect of this society. They were where people met. They were where young people were allowed to meet and actually touch each other, you know, just maybe by, you know, just maybe touch a hand and that was about it. They were allowed to mix and mingle under the parent's supervision, of course, but it was a place they were allowed significantly more freedom than they would be at any other time. I think eventually I'll have to do a lot more investigation and do a sidebar on balls in Regency England because they're one of the most important parts of Jane's literature. Anyways, getting back to the story. The arrival of a new family in the country was always a matter of joy to him and in every point of view he was charmed with the inhabitants he had now procured for his cottage at Barton. The Miss Dashwoods were young, pretty, and unaffected. It was enough to secure his good opinion, for to be unaffected was all that a pretty girl could want to make her mind as captivating as her person. The friendliness of his disposition made him happy in accommodating those whose situation may be considered in comparison with the past as unfortunate. In showing kindness to his cousins, therefore, he had the real satisfaction of a good heart. And in setting a family of females only in his cottage, he had all the satisfaction of a sportsman. 
for a sportsman, though he esteems only those of his sex who are sportsmen likewise, is not often desirous of encouraging their taste by admitting them to a residence within his own manor. Sir John is absolutely thrilled to have new blood in the neighborhood. It means new faces on the scene. But more than that, he's happy that he was able to do something good. He's just a good guy. You know, he's, he's just a good guy. And he wants to do nice things, particularly for a family with no men. Because, as Jane writes, because if that family had men in it, it would have been expected that Sir John would provide him, or them, with hunting and shooting privileges in Barton Park. But women, at this time, don't hunt or shoot. So he's very happy to help them, although he doesn't have anything in common with anyone who's not a sportsman. And that section I read is interesting for another reason as well, because it brings up a word that Austen uses many times in her novels as a descriptor. And I'll read it again. The Miss Dashwoods were young, pretty, and unaffected. It was enough to secure his good opinion, for to be unaffected was all that a pretty girl could want to make her mind as captivating as her person. So what does unaffected mean? Austen uses this word a lot. In fact, she uses it in all of her published novels and in some of her juvenilia work. I actually did a word search on the public domain versions of her books on Project Gutenberg and came up with these stats for the word unaffected. Sense and sensibility, four times. Pride and prejudice, seven times. Mansfield Park, one time. Northanger Abbey, twice. Emma, four times. Lady Susan, zero. Love and Friendship and other early works, once. So Jane uses this term quite a bit, enough for an average reader to identify it. It's usually used by a narrator to describe a character's nature or feelings at a particular moment, but occasionally one character will use it to describe another. But what does it mean? And so, and what does it mean if a character is affected? It sounds like an illness. I'm sorry, your husband is affected with, his, with an affectation. He won't last long. So I went to the dictionary for this, uh, Merriam-Webster app. There are three definitions for affected. The first one is having or showing an attitude or mode of behavior that is not natural or genuinely felt, given to or marked by affectation. It can also mean assumed artificially or falsely, pretended. So this reminds me of some of, some of Austen's characters, such as the Eltons or Frank Churchill and Emma, and Mr. Collins in spades in Pride and Prejudice. These are characters who pretend to show interest in people or things in order to be seen in an advantageous manner. They're, they're fake. So to be affected is to be fake. So unaffected must mean the opposite. And I looked that term up too, of course. And there are two meanings. Not influenced or changed mentally, physically, or chemically. Free from affectation. Genuine. So Eleanor and Marianne are genuine. Artless is another term that uh, Austin uses a lot. And it means basically the same thing. 
They don't try to make people like them. They don't pretend to be interested in subjects in order to gain attention. They don't suck up to Sir John or Lady Middleton. They're polite. They're sweet. They're unpretentious young women. And Sir John is also unaffected. Mrs. Dashwood and her daughters were met at the door of the house by Sir John, who welcomed them to Barton Park with unaffected sincerity, and as he attended them to the drawing-room, repeated to the young ladies the concern which the same subject had drawn from him the day before, at being unable to get any smart young men to meet them. So Sir John is just as unaffected as... Eleanor and Marianne. He's just a really, as we talked about earlier, he's just a really nice guy. But he does have two people there to entertain the Dashwoods, and now we get to meet them. He warns the ladies that they're not special guests. It's just a bad time of the month to get guests on short notice. He says he had been to several families that morning in hopes of procuring some addition to their number, but it was moonlight and everybody was full of engagements. Well, what does that mean? So I had to look this up, too. Since there were no streetlights outside of London, people had to walk home or drive home in the dark. They preferred to have parties and to go see their friends when the moon was full, so they would have moonlight to walk home by. But the Dashwoods are really happy that this is a small party, since they're new to the neighborhood, they don't know anyone, and it would just be really awkward and I don't know about you, but I am that person who does not want to go to a big party because I'm going to be end up sitting in the corner playing with the cat or the dog or the hamster or whatever happens to be there. <laughs> so the Dashwoods are really happy this is going to be a small party. So going back to the text I didn't read, one of the guests is a gentleman a particular friend who was staying at the park, but one who was neither very young nor very gay. The other is Lady Middleton's mother, a good-humored, merry, fat, elderly woman who talked a great deal, seemed very happy, and rather vulgar. That's Mrs. Jennings. I think Mrs. Jennings is my favorite character in this book. She's such a delightful person. She would so drive any teenager crazy with the teasing and the awkward questions. But I think that behind all of the teasing, she understands teenage girls better than anyone in the entire novel. And we'll talk about this much later, but I began to see this the last time I read Sense and Sensibility. How much... She understands exactly what the girls are going through, probably without saying a word, without them saying anything. She gets it. And maybe it's because she's been there. She was a teenage girl. Maybe it's because she's a mother to daughters. Maybe it's a little bit of both. But I, I just love Mrs. Jennings. I think she is one of my favorite characters. She was full of jokes and laughter, and before dinner was over, had said many witty things on the subject of lovers and husbands, hoped that they had not left their hearts behind them in Sussex, and pretended to see them blush whether they did or not. Marianne was vexed at it, for her sister's sake, and turned her eyes towards Eleanor to see how she bore these attacks, 
with an earnestness which gave Eleanor far more pain than could arise from such commonplace raillery as Mrs. Jennings's. The gentleman, Sir John's friend, is Colonel Brandon, and I love this sentence. Colonel Brandon, the friend of Sir John, seemed no more adapted by resemblance of manner to be his friend than Lady Middleton was to be his wife. Love it. So this is a really weird party. There's Sir John and Mrs. Jennings, who are really talkative and gregarious and just friendly and outgoing people. There's Lady Middleton, who is this beautiful dish rag. And, and there's Colonel Brandon, who is described as silent and grave. Yeah, that's a great party. His appearance, however, was not unpleasing. In spite of his being, in the opinion of Marianne and Margaret, an absolute old bachelor, for he was on the wrong side of five and thirty, but though his face was not handsome, his countenance was sensible, and his address was particularly gentlemanlike. You know, the first time I read this book, I was about nineteen, and I thought nothing of the sentence, but now that hurts, man, that hurts. That oh, old bachelor at thirty-five. Man, and isn't Mrs. Isn't Mr. Knightley thirty-five when he married Emma? Oh no, no, I just googled it. He's thirty-seven. Ah, uh, God. Anyways, back to the book. So this party is a drag. It's a mixed bag, but the Dashwoods realize that the silent, grave old bachelor and the wise-cracking old lady are the best part of this party. The cold insipidity of Lady Middleton was so particularly repulsive that a comparison of it, the gravity of Colonel Brandon, and even the boisterous mirth of Sir John and his mother-in-law was interesting. Lady Middleton is only interested in her children who, quote, pulled her about, tore her clothes, and put an end to every kind of discourse except what related to themselves. Isn't that exactly like all children? So once the kids are away, Marianne breaks out the piano, and I literally mean break it out because it was locked, and it probably had been locked since Sir John and Lady Middleton got married, for her ladyship had celebrated that event by giving up music, although by her mother's account, she had played extremely well, and by her own, was very fond of it. So Lady Middleton celebrated her marriage by putting aside all of her accomplishments even the one she enjoyed, and having a bunch of kids. As for Marianne's accomplishment, she's really very good. She plays all of Lady Middleton's songs, and she sings them too. This is exceptional. Musicians practice for years to learn how to accompany themselves on the piano or another instrument while singing. So Marianne has obviously worked very hard. And we don't even know if Marianne has ever seen any of this music before. So she's also sight-reading while playing. And all of this means that Marianne, who is 16, is an exceptional musician. But Marianne's talents are mostly falling on deaf ears. Have you ever been to a club with friends, you know, in the before times when we could go to clubs and see your particular band play and all your friends want to do is talk and you miss end up missing the entire set? Well, that's Sir John. Marianne's performance was highly applauded. Sir John was loud in his admiration at the end of every song, and as loud in his conversation with the others while every song lasted. 
Lady Middleton frequently called him to order and wondered how anyone's attention could be diverted from music for a moment and asked Marianne to sing a particular song which Marianne had just finished. But one person is listening, that 35-year-old bachelor. Colonel Brandon alone, of all the party, heard her without being in raptures. He paid her the only compliment of attention, and she felt a respect for him on the occasion which the others had reasonably forfeited by their shameless want of taste. His pleasure in music, though it amounted not to that ecstatic delight which alone could sympathize with her own, was estimable when contrasted against the horrible insensibility of the others, and she was reasonable enough to allow that a man of five and thirty may well have outlived all acuteness of feeling and every exquisite power of enjoyment. She was perfectly disposed to make every allowance for the colonel's advanced state of life which humanity required. Ouch. So Colonel Brandon isn't responding the way Marianne wants her audience to, but his attention is acceptable, and Marianne figures that he probably can't respond the way she prefers because he's just too old. He's grown past all of that. He's too old to feel rapturous anymore. Well, the others are just babbling away and saying, and, and they're in raptures, but they're also not paying attention. Now, I was going to talk about Colonel Brandon's origins today, but I think I'll save that for another episode. So that's all for today. Thank you for listening to Ends and Sensibility. This episode was written and produced by me, Casey Meserve. You can write to me at endsandsensibility at gmail.com and follow Ends and Sensibility on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. If you like the podcast, please share and leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. I really appreciate it, and it helps the show so much. Check out our website, EnsignSensibility.com, for episode notes, a list of books and references mentioned on the podcast, and more. I hope you'll visit again soon.